Mary Williamson is a nurse preparing for her rounds. And as she does, she forgets to tell her newest patient, a little boy, how his hospital room intercom would work. Soon the little boy pushes the little red button on his bed, and his light flashed at the nurse's station. Nurse Mary called out his name and asked, "Uh, What may I do for you, sweetie? There was complete silence. Nurse Mary repeated the question, "Uh, What may I do for you? And a few moments later, you could hear the little boy's voice, and he said, Jesus, I hear you, but I don't see you. Where are you? Nurse Mary said, I couldn't get to his room fast enough to give that little boy a hug. Well, in our text today, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we read of another boy who heard a voice, and he wasn't sure what to do with it either. Our story begins with an old man, uh, an elderly priest by the name of Eli. He stands there and he stooped over. His eyes are growing dim from blindness. And his body is so weak that he can no longer lift the sacrifices onto the altar. Even his voice is shaky, just above a whisper. To see the weakened state of the priest, priest Eli, is to see the spiritual condition and the reputation of the Jewish priesthood. Among the Jewish worshipers, The priesthood was corrupt. It was failed. It was useless. Now, how it became like this is easy to see. Just watch what Eli's sons do. They are also priests in 1 Samuel chapter 2. They were scoundrels. They were so corrupt that they would take God's portions of the animal sacrifices and they would keep them for themselves. That's the kind of men they were. Uh, Then there are the women at the tabernacle who sing, who prepare the food, and they keep the temple clean. Well, Eli's sons slept with most of them. And here's what was most shocking. These young priests, they didn't care who knew. They had no shame in their sin. So if Eli represents the priesthood in shambles, young Samuel He represents the future of the prophets. Now, what makes Samuel different from Eli's son is that even though he is just a boy, Samuel is developing a discernment. He's developing a uh, responsiveness to the voice of God, a voice that the people of Israel have not heard for a long, long time. In fact, in 1 Samuel 3, verse 1, it says this, In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Now notice how Eli's low vision in verse 2 matches the rare visions the priests received from God in verse 1. Well, for three nights, God called out to Samuel, and neither Samuel nor Eli knew what to do. On the fourth night, Eli finally figured out it was God calling Samuel. And so he tells Samuel to listen. Listen, for God is speaking. And what a message God had. God warned Samuel that his judgment was coming down upon the priesthood of Israel. 
Because their sinfulness, because their reputation was beyond repair, God was going to wipe out the priesthood. He was just going to do away with them. Samuel, he delivers that prophetic message to Israel. And it was such disturbing news. news. Verse 11 says that it caused the ears of all those who heard it to be in pain. They were terrified. Terrified by the bad news that they heard. But God's message to Samuel served a second purpose. In talking to Israel, God bypassed Eli the priest. This signals a significant change in how God would lead his people from that moment on. Prophets would replace priests of which the young boy Samuel would be the first prophet. Poor Samuel. Though just a boy, can you imagine having to give Eli, his mentor, his teacher, his second father, can you imagine having to give Eli this bad news? You're out, I'm in. So no wonder in verse 15 that it tells tells us that Samuel was afraid. Well, seeing the uneasiness on Samuel's face, Eli wants to know what God said. Samuel doesn't need to sugarcoat it. Eli wants all the plain, painful details, as verse 17 says. And so Samuel blurts out the truth, telling Eli, Eli that God was terminating the priesthood, expelling Eli from the priesthood. After receiving God's prophetic word from the boy, Samuel, How will Eli respond? Anger? Rage? Disbelief? Well, we find out in verse 18, Eli says, it is Yahweh. That is a statement of submission, of acceptance. Eli receives the bad news, and there's no resisting. He doesn't question God. He doesn't even question the boy Samuel. Raises a big question for us. Does God ever have to try again and again to get our attention? Are we able to hear, hear God over the personal slogans that we chant and that we live by in our lives? The Corinthians struggled to hear God's voice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we see the Corinthian church was deaf to what God was saying. Now, As Paul instructs the Corinthians in verses 12 and 13, he repeats two of their most common slogans. Verse 12, all things are lawful for for me. And then verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. The church in Corinth, uh, it was about 50 to 75 members, and it was a young church plant. Well, As immature disciples are often guilty of doing, they took a biblical idea to an extreme that was never intended. For the Corinthians, when Paul taught them about their freedom that they had in Christ, they twisted it to mean they could do whatever their bodies desired. It appears appears that the Corinthians combined the gospel with Gnostic philosophy. Now, we don't need to spend a lot of time talking about Gnosticism, but it will help you to know just a little bit about it. Gnosticism is a false teaching that believed that the body was a prison that trapped the soul. 
So the body was evil and the soul is good. Well, believing that God was only interested in the soul, the Corinthians then began began to think that God only connected with them and saved the soul. So God would one day destroy all flesh. Again, because they thought the body was evil and only the soul was good, that created some problems. And this is likely what leads to the Corinthians thinking. And here's what they likely thought. Well, since the body doesn't matter to God, since the body won't last for eternity, we can do whatever we want with our bodies. Because what is real, what is eternal, is the soul. So, moral restraints? Who needs them? We can live whatever lifestyle we want. That is likely the thinking of the Corinthians. Well, as you can imagine, Gnosticism led to all kinds of hedonistic lifestyles which is what the Corinthians fell into. Why? Again, because if the body doesn't matter to God, everything is permissible. Any behavior is allowed. And the Corinthians lived this out. Prostitution, for instance, a common practice in Corinth, was so common, few people saw visiting a prostitute as being out of bounds. In fact, many wives in the ancient world, they would not have been offended by their husbands having a woman on the side. And it is likely that at Corinth Christian Church, the elder or teacher who delivered the Bible lesson on Sunday morning, you would also see them with a prostitute on Monday afternoon. And they would have waved at you, and they would have slipped into the dark of the back room, no one feeling any shame. Why? Because it's just a body. Jesus saved the soul, so it doesn't really matter what the body does. Or there's the sweet lady who's rocking your child in the nursery on Sunday morning. At Corinth Christian Church, everyone knew she was having sex with her son. An incestual relationship, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But to the church of Corinth, it's okay because the soul is safe with Jesus. This is how the Corinthians would have practiced their slogan, All things are lawful for me. Gnosticism is what allowed prostitution, incest, and homosexuality to be prominent in the church of Corinth. Now, I want you to stick with me. I want your attention here. Doesn't Corinth sound like our culture today? We live in a culture where a man can say, I am a woman stuck in a man's body. People say, what's so bad about homosexuality? It's only sex. Uh, Pornography has become such a normal part of life today that confronting a friend about it, the response you will likely get is this. Well, why does it matter? It's not hurting anyone. And these statements are what Christians are saying. You see, in the church today, Many people do not believe it matters what the body does. If the soul is saved by Jesus, do whatever you want with your body. Christians are beginning to believe that it is more important to be publicly authentic, to be true to one's inner self, than it is to be holy, to live as if God cares about our bodies. Gnosticism. 
Gnosticism is coming back into the church again. The Gnostic way of life, Paul says in verse 12, is enslaving people. They're not as free as they assume that they are. And so to correct this, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. The Lord is for the body. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, was it just his soul that resurrected? No. Jesus wasn't a ghost. His physical body came out of the tomb. Now, how do we know this? Well, Scripture tells us. You remember that scene with Thomas, when Thomas touched the nail print in his hands? How about the apostles? They ate fish with Jesus on the beach. Ghosts don't eat. And then when Jesus ascended into heaven, it was his earthly body that went to heaven. From the resurrection, we discover that our bodies do matter to God. Now listen to the first part of verse 15 in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says this, Do you not know that your bodies are a member of Christ? Now, as Paul is using it here, this word member, it means body part. Paul is saying that our bodies are body parts of Jesus. Now, get the picture in your head. As a Christian, your physical body is connected to Jesus' body. And a part of Jesus' body, it is holy, used for holy purposes. There's a union between our bodies and Jesus. So listen to the second part of verse 15. Paul says this, Shall I then take the body parts of Christ and make them body parts of a prostitute? By no means. What the Corinthians failed to understand is that their bodies are not just their bodies. Being connected to Christ, their bodies are now Christ's body. And what they do with their body drags Christ with them into their conduct. When they are off visiting the prostitutes, Paul says, are you going to take the body of Christ, the body parts of Christ, and unite them with a prostitute? May it never be. Why? Because our bodies matter to God. Now let's keep following Paul's logic here. Being connected to Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in our bodies, and Jesus works his will in the world through our bodies. So in verse 19, Paul uses the imagery of the temple of God, the dwelling place of the Spirit of God, to show that our bodies are now the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Your body is God's temple because the Spirit of God dwells in you. This means that the freedom I have in Christ is not for whatever immoral act my desires crave, but the freedom to do what God desires. Now, Paul comes to the punchline of everything he's been saying. It is simple and it's straightforward. Here it is. Since our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Jesus owns us. In verse 20, Paul says, You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Honor God with your bodies. How do we do that? Well, I think the Psalms can help us with this. In Psalm 139, listen to verses 1 through 5. 
You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. What did you learn about God as I read those five verses? He knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Now, this doesn't sound like good news at first. For a God who invades our privacy, we wonder if he may try, if he may try to intimidate or bully us with the dirt that he has on us. But that doesn't match what we see of God in Psalm 139. There is no suggestion in this passage, in this prayer of judgment. What the psalmist is trying to help us see is how intertwined God is with us. God is not far off. God is not uncaring about what we do. In fact, he is so familiar with you and with me, he even knows when we sit and when we stand up. In fact, just try and hide from God. Try it. You can't do it. Verse 11 says, If I say, surely darkness will conceal me, Night will provide me with cover. It won't. Because for God, light and darkness do not limit his knowledge. God even knows what we do in the darkness. And at the thought of this, listen to the psalmist's response in verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too lofty for me to attain, for, too lofty for me to grasp. Yes, it blows the mind to realize how much God knows about us. But there's something else that's happening in verse 6. In admiring how much God knows about us, we are made aware of how little we know about God. Can you imagine what we would be like if we pursued God with the same zeal that He pursues us with? In Psalm 139, here's something interesting. The verb to know, it occurs seven times. Verse 1, verse 2, 4, 6, 14, and twice in 23. And this word has a wide range of meanings in the Old Testament. And the meaning I think the psalmist is pointing to, we find in Job chapter 5, 27. It says this, See, we have searched this out. It is true. Hear it and know it yourself. Some form of this word know occurs 60 times in the Psalms. God's people are to know God for themselves, because to know God is to have a relationship with God. We could say it this way, to grow in knowledge of God in the scriptures is to deepen our relationship with God. We are to know God as God knows us. So what we learn from Samuel, the Corinthians, and the Psalms is this, to know God is to be responsive to God. To know God is to be free to be responsive 
to God. So let me ask you a question. On a scale of one to 10, one being you don't know God at all, through seven, excuse me, through seven, I know God as well as Jesus did. How well do you know him? What number would you give yourself? What will you need to do to raise that number by one? Say from a two to a three or a four to a five. Uh, Think of this question. On a scale of one to ten, one to seven, you never respond to what God calls you to do. That's a one. Through seven, that you seek the wisdom of the word continuously, obeying God's word in all things. How responsive are you to God on a scale of one to seven? Ask yourself this question. What will you need to do to raise that number by one, from a two to a three or a four to a five? What will you begin to do this week to grow in knowing and responding to God? Because remember, to know God is to be free to be responsive to God. God bless.